Welcome to Saltier Politics. Julie, these have been quite a turbulent couple weeks. How are you doing? I'm good. Um, Things are good. They have been a little turbulent. Um, New York City has been quiet, I have to say. Uh, It's been very nice. Stores have reopened to the extent that you can obviously go in, but in a limited capacity. Some of them are making you schedule appointments and people. It seems like it's getting back to normal to some extent and it's being done safely. I'm very happy to to say that obviously it seems that at least this phase of the virus seems to be on the decline here in New York. I know where you are in Florida, where you decided to go for a couple of days and ended up staying for something like six months now, Em, right? You've been there a really long time. (laughs) Since March 13th. (laughs) With no end in sight. Are you ever coming back? Actually, I'm coming back at the end of July for sure. Oh, awesome. Okay. Well, then you'll be able to come over um, after the appropriate self-quarantine time, because I understand that our governor has ensured that you cannot go anywhere for two weeks after you come back from Florida. Um, But down by you, it's not that great. I mean, Florida's really just been exploding. I mean, it has been pretty much life as usual. Restaurants are still open. Uh, People Indoor dining, too? Indoor dining as well. Uh, There's social distancing, but everybody has their masks off. And there are workout classes still in gyms. And Texas doctors released a list of danger of activities and gyms were ranked on a nine out of one to 10 risk. So yeah, you know, what's interesting to me about indoor dining, uh, you have, you're in Florida, it's July, I am sure it's brutally hot down there. I mean, it's it's awful here in New York. So I, I don't know if I've ever been to Florida in the summer because no same person would go to Florida in the summer. But anyway, the point is it's very hot. And you have um, air conditioning that's recirculating. Right. There's not HVAC systems everywhere. So that's, right. I believe, one of the most dangerous things you can do. So why your governor is not putting an end to that, I just don't get it. It's just, it's completely antithetical to science. And you've got people just, uh, Florida is the epicenter. Florida, it's almost like Gumby. There's such a fixation about Republicans to fit into Donald Trump's deranged narrative of how things should go, which is not based on science and it's not based on research and it's not based on epidemiology or public health concerns. It's based purely on him wanting to get the economy going again so that it could recover in time for his election. And fine. I mean, if that's what Donald Trump wants, you know, he's insane. But why your governor would go along with it other than just fear of pissing off the Trump base is, is it's so negligent to me that I really this this is above and beyond partisan politics to me. This is truly a public menace. I I agree. And it, and it also applies to schools, too, because I wanted to talk to you about the opening of schools, which you probably saw Trump's tweet saying schools must open in all caps come the fall. But also, you know, in New York, daycares are opening on the 13th of July. I'll tell you this. I don't know what daycare is going to look like in New York. And I don't know what precautions they've taken because I don't have a mercifully don't have a child who's of daycare age. Um, my son is going to camp. It's been delayed by about three weeks, but he is starting camp um, outside the city to day camp. So we're getting on a bus every day to go up there. But what they're doing is, and by the way, a lot of parents decided not to do what I'm doing. They decided not to send their, their kids to camp this summer because of the dangers and concerns. Um, and that's totally understandable. But And a lot of camps shut down. His camp happened to not be one of the camps that shut down. But what they're doing is they're putting 
these kids on the bus every day, they're gonna check their temperature at the bus stop. They're making sure that they are separating them by rows. They basically get a bus row all to themselves um, so that they're more than six feet away from each other. Uh, and they're doing everything outside. And I think if it rains, they might cancel camp that day. Or uh, So the point is you're not gonna be indoors at all. And obviously guidelines as they are today say that camp that outside, being outside, poses a minimal risk or much less of a risk, and certainly for children than being indoors. I also have had it, so I have the antibodies, so I'm not as concerned about catching it from him, and kids, again, don't seem to be as prone to it, but it is a risk. I mean, listen, it's, it's a major risk that I had to balance between keeping him cooped up at home all summer, uh, and you know my son, He's incredibly active. He's incredibly athletic. I think he would just go crazy if he were cooped up indoors all summer, as he was all spring. Um, so I made the difficult decision to send him to camp. Uh, but I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, his school, New York City public schools, he doesn't go to a public school, but New York City public schools just made an announcement. They're doing a hybrid type situation where um, I think kids are going to be going for maybe one or two days a week in order to have social distancing, his school, from what I was told, is going to have school every day, at least for the lower school, but they're going to have uh, a bridged, shortened school day, which brings its own challenges. It's just an impossible situation. There's a good quote. Chris Jansing, MSNBC reporter, tweeted out, teachers are scared, says AFT President Randy Weingarten on Trump minimizing science of safe school reopening. Quote, we're going to have a whole lot of people retire early, quit, take a leave at the very same time these kids need experienced teachers. We're going to see a huge brain drain. So she's absolutely right. She's 100% right. Because if I think about my own son's school, there are plenty of teachers that I can identify on the top of my head who are older. I assume even the ones who aren't, some of them might have pre-existing conditions. And, and by the way, even if they don't, they have kids of their own they have to worry about. They can't afford Listen, I've, I, as we talked about, I had the coronavirus. I was basically incapacitated for two weeks, right? So even if these teachers are like me and they don't have pre-existing conditions and they're not at the age where they're at risk, but they get it, they are incapacitated. Or God forbid, more than incapacitated, they end up in the ICU, which plenty of people in their 20s and 30s and 40s without pre-existing conditions ended up being it. So you can open up schools, but can you really open up schools if parents are afraid to send their kids to the schools and teachers are afraid to teach? It's, it's an impossible situation. You have to let people decide on their own. The same way, listen, I appreciate that camp is not school, camp is not necessary the way school is necessary, but you also have to let people make decisions in the best interest of their families that are also based on science. I mean, again, I made a calculated decision to send my son to camp based on the best scientific data available. Is it foolproof? Of course not. Is it a risk I was willing to take because of the various metrics that I uh, that we just talked about? Yes. Do I blame some of the other parents I know who refused to do that for their kids? Not at all. I understand exactly where they're coming from. So now you're having potentially you're establishing two sets of criteria for kids with the president's decision. Kids whose parents are going to say, fine, go back to school. If there are even teachers in the classroom to teach them, they'll be 
taught. And then the parents who, for whatever reason, maybe their kids are immunocompromised. Um, maybe they're just scared to death, as they should be, about having their kids sit in the same kind of indoor restaurant situation that we talked about without an HVAC system. Some of these kids learn in trailers, by the way. It's not like public schools around the country are all these great buildings with these great amenities. I mean, there are, are really rundown schools. A lot of Florida trailers around here. Yeah. I mean, seriously. So those kids aren't having some sort of air circulating that's clean and, and, and those teachers certainly aren't. And so those people, those parents might decide that they're not going to send their kids to school, but there won't be anything for them to learn because there won't be any kind of remote learning plan since he is demanding that people go back to school. So you're consigning a generation of children for at least the next six months to a year for who, for whatever reason, cannot go back to school to what, what are these kids going to be doing? Like, imagine if you had an immunocompromised, uh, my son is eight. Imagine if you had an immunocompromised eight year old and, or if I were immunocompromised and I just could not have a kid who could be a potential carrier at home and there were no remote learning for him, what would he be doing every day? Right. If I were if I were not around to homeschool him myself. And I, there are certain things I can't homeschool him in. I just, uh, there's certain, look, and that's for a third grader, right? I could probably homeschool him in 90% of what he's learning. I, I, I probably know. What about somebody in sixth grade or, or ninth grade or 12th grade? I don't know physics. Right, exactly. And it hasn't been thought through. And I think they're just kind of pushing on and steamrolling a lot of, we're going to open now without any of the planning or the correct budgeting. Well, because the problem is that they, it's, it's, like, it's like the gun epidemic, right? They want us to get to the point where we're so desensitized to these infections and these deaths that it's basically like, oh, there's another school shooting. Okay. Like when Columbine happened in 1999, that was 24-7 on the news. It was the seminal event of that year. Um, it just became a huge thing because it was so horrific that these two kids, whose names, you know, Dylan Klebold, I still remember the name of one of the kids and Eric something or other, um, because it was such a huge event and that happened 21 years ago. This happens every day. And everybody's desensitized to it now, 20 years later. Meanwhile, this is the way they're trying to get to with the coronavirus. Oh, I'm sorry, another person died from the coronavirus? Well, that's just the way it is. Well, no, it's not just the way it is. The European Union has gotten it under control. It's devaluing right? it's, life. Here. It's devaluing life. And, but the difference between a school shooting and the coronavirus is at the rate that it is procreating for lack of a better word, we're getting to the point where it's going to affect everybody if you don't contain it. And this is not a partisan issue because the governor of Ohio, who is a lifelong Republican, has done a great job on this. Right. Mike DeWine. He just mandated masks in counties that are hard, hardest to hardest hit in Ohio by this virus. And then you have some dumb sheriff in one of those counties saying, I'm not going to enforce that. You know, it's to be your personal decision to wear a mask or not wear a mask. Well, wait a second. Is it your personal decision to wear a seatbelt? No, you wear seatbelts. You know, seatbelts are mandated so that you don't go through a window. But this is even worse than a seatbelt because if you go through a window because you choose not to wear a seatbelt, 
that's fine. You're taking your life into your own hands. Go ahead and die. That's your decision. This is you're taking other people's lives into your hands because if you're infected and you're not wearing a mask, you cough on somebody, they get infected. Exactly. It's, it's just, it's brutal to me. Larry Hogan in Maryland, another gut Republican governor who's, who's done a good job on this. This is not a partisan issue, but governors like yours down in Florida, make who, it of one. course, of course, make it one. Masks are suddenly partisan. Why are masks partisan? That's it. And even uh, the New Hampshire governor, who's a Republican, he said he'll meet Trump on the tarmac to welcome him in New Hampshire, but he won't be attending his, the rally because it's not safe for him or his family. Well, look what happened in Tulsa County. So sure enough, Trump has this rally a couple of weeks ago in Tulsa. Suddenly, cases in Tulsa spike, spike. And scientists have said that it is directly attributable to that rally which was not even that packed. And what's fascinating to me about this is the rally was indoors. It was not outside. Everybody who's like, oh, well, the Black Lives Matter movement and everybody's talking, you know, nobody's upset about the protest. The protests were all outside and the one that, the one that I saw, at least, people wearing masks. This is indoors. That's the difference. And anybody who thinks this is the scientific community trying to screw Donald Trump in some way, well, guess what? They're not. Not trying to screw Donald Trump in some way. Science has a well-known liberal bias. No, it doesn't. Science doesn't care. This pandemic doesn't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat. It just doesn't. It doesn't matter. You know, I always see this about sexual harassment and about in our fight for NDAs where the predator who's preying on you in the workplace doesn't really care if you have an R behind your name or a D behind your name. The pandemic is kind of, not kind of, the pandemic is even more like that. It doesn't matter. Listen, Kimberly Guilfoyle, who's dating Donald Trump Jr., our, you know, our former colleague at Fox, got the coronavirus. She's as Trumpian as it gets. It doesn't discriminate. No. It doesn't discriminate. Uh, you know, anyway, we can talk about this for 100 years because it's annoying and we haven't talked in a couple of weeks. And obviously this has been building up in me. All right, I'm going to say something very personal. The reason we did not do the podcast last week is because my mother um, was ill and ended up going to the emergency room. So my mother's in her 70s. Um, she's okay. But there was real concern about whether she should go to the emergency room because of fears of catching COVID. Um, her we thought it was a heart issue, so it had nothing to do with COVID, but, um, but there was real debate as to whether she should go or not go because of COVID. And the last thing I want is for my mother or anybody else's mother to have to make a decision about, should I risk having a heart attack at home, which she did not have, so thank God, but, or because I'm too afraid of getting COVID. This thing is brutal. It's awful. And do you know how many people actually died in New York City? I mean, there was a study about this because they were too afraid to go to the ER because of the fact that they were worried about getting COVID. This is not the country we want to live in. We want to get this under control as quickly as possible, which requires pain. It requires sacrifice, but it's going to take a little while. And we can do very simple things, just a mask. Like the mask is the new purse chapstick. Just have it with you at all times. It's not- Put on a mask. I have a great story of a small public 
shaming. So one of my friends, he, we were in Starbucks and this woman comes in without a mask and she's interrupting him and he's talking to the barista. Everybody else is wearing a mask. And right. he goes, oh, did you come in here to talk about, to, to announce you're not wearing a mask? And, and she just like yeah. turned around and left. And it's like, <laughs> good, good. I, yeah, good. that's what needs to happen. You need to feel, I hope she was embarrassed and I hope every time she thinks about not wearing a mask, she puts it on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just, I remember all these people a few months ago saying, oh, well, you know, you people in New York, you're the ones, it's all these democratic states who are getting this virus and, and it's because of, you know, the way you live and um, your policies and your governors and whatever you're doing wrong, you're all getting them. And I kept saying, I remember saying it on Twitter, I certainly said it on this podcast many times back in the fall, in the spring, excuse me, uh, it's coming. It's coming to you. And look what's going on. Arizona, South Carolina, Florida, Texas, all Republican states, all in warm parts of the country where apparently this virus was not ever going to go, are all getting it. Well, why them? Why them? And why has New York City, the most densely populated city in the country, large city in the country, why New Jersey, the most densely populated state in the country, why are they on a good trajectory? Because they took it seriously. Because they took it seriously. They took it seriously. And their governors took it seriously. And they're starting to tick up a little bit again now because a little bit of these rules have been relaxed. So now they're being reimposed to some extent. Nobody's happy about it. But you got to do it. You just have to. I'm sorry. I mean, you have to. So anyway, let's move on. Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman announced he would be retiring from the U.S. Army as a result of reta retaliation from top DOD officials and the White House. If people just need a quick reminder, during last fall's House impeachment hearings, Vindman testified under subpoena about his concerns regarding President Trump's phone call to Ukrainian President Zelensky. Well, let me just give a little background about Alexander Vidman and his um, twin brother Evgeny, who's also uh, an army officer. They are, I, I feel a very strong kinship to him. They came here um, from the former Soviet Union, from Ukraine, but still part of the former Soviet Union. There was really not much difference. Um, I think when they were four, maybe, um, with their dad and their grandmother, because their mother had died. And their father, who was a widower, brought his two boys and I believe either his own mother or mother-in-law to the States. And they went through what I went through, which is that you can't come straight here. I don't know if they went to Austria. I know they went to Italy, but just to explain the trajectory of what it is like as a child to have come from the Soviet Union at the time that they did and at the time that I did, which I think was around the same period of time, um, you can't come straight here. You were given a visa to go, if you were a Soviet Jew, which they were, um, and certainly my family was, you had to get a visa only to go to Israel. And it was very hard to get out. It's not like you could just go. I mean, you were literally behind the Iron Curtain. So a very small number of people were able to leave. Their family happened to be lucky enough to be one of them. My family was lucky enough to be another. Um, but you had to get a visa to go to Israel because that's where Jews belonged, according to the Soviets, if they, had, if they belonged anywhere at all. And then... Um, at least in our case, when you had to fly to Vienna, Austria. And 
I remember we left. I remember this like it was yesterday. I was six. It was a very early morning. Um, on February 15th, 1980, we had to get, we had people come and see us off. We thought we'd never see our family again. I never, my grandparents raised me. I, they were not allowed to leave with us even if they wanted to. Um, I never thought I'd see my grandparents again. You're basically being ripped away from anything you've ever known. My mother was 33. My father was 35. They had, that's it. Their life, they'd never see their friends and family again. Um, and People were, a lot of people were afraid to come see us off because we were all under surveillance by the KGB because we had been marked as people who were obviously betraying the state, quote unquote. That sounds familiar to you with the way things are going here. Um, and so there are people who, family members who just wouldn't come to see us off. But anyway, a few did. And then we left basically at dawn um, for the airport and got on a plane to Vienna and as I remember, we got off the plane in Vienna. It's not a long plane ride from Moscow to Vienna. Um, I got off the plane. I looked at my parents and I was six and they looked terrified as of course they would be, um, having never left the Soviet Union, not speaking a word of German, um, having literally no money in their pocket. We had $90 when we finally came to the States. I mean, nothing, just the clothes on our back and a few suitcases. And I remember looking at my parents and saying, crap, they don't know what they're doing. And at that very precise moment, at the age of six, I realized I, I grew up there. That was kind of the end of my childhood right there. Um, and I remember that very well. And that is exactly what Alexander Vindman and his twin brother, I'm sure, felt, especially because they had just lost their mother. Um, it was even tougher for them. Um, I had been ripped away from my grandparents who were like parents to me because I lived with them. Um, and they were obviously had just gone through the trauma of losing their mother. And then we ended up <clears throat> going for, in Austria. You had to declare whether you were going to go to Israel or you're going to try to come to the States. My parents decided they wanted to go to the States, which was the intention all along, as obviously did his father. And then we went to Italy to tr people who went to Israel, went straight to Israel. Those who came to the States had to go to Italy to um, live in a, at least we lived in a little town called Ostia um, outside of Rome, which is the port city of, of Rome, waiting for a visa to the United States, a refugee visa here. Um, it's an incredibly traumatic experience for children, incredibly traumatic. And in talking to other Soviet immigrants who came here as children, all of us are colored and defined by that experience, probably more than anything else. I, you know, they lost their mother, so obviously they were colored by that as well. But um, there's, I always say, there's really nothing anybody could throw at me that would be tougher than that. And when I went through my Fox um, lawsuit, everybody kept saying, are you okay, are you okay? And I kept saying to everybody, I've been through worse and, and I have been through much worse and, and this was much worse. Um, and I say all of this because when you come here, when we were flying into JFK, we were on an Alitalia flight, and I had turned seven by then, when they said to us, okay, we're about to land JFK in New York, my father kept running to the window to see if he could see the Statue of Liberty. Um, he was, I mean, I don't mean to get emotional about it, but it was really, I still remember it. And so... I think for the Vinmans and for me, you have a really huge appreciation of this country. I think in ways that most people don't. 
And it's not the jingoistic kind of appreciation of love it or leave it. It's not the Trump way of, you know, criticize America, you're anti-American. It's truly an appreciation of wanting a more perfect union. And by, by its very nature, more perfect means it is not perfect now. And it will never be perfect, but it could be made better. Um, and you love this country in ways that I think are very real and very tangible because you never take it for granted because you know where you came from and you know what you sacrificed to come here and what your parents sacrificed for you. So for different people, that takes different routes. For me, I really wanted to go into the foreign service and serve this country abroad. Um, when I graduated from graduate school, that didn't work out because the foreign service had just been cutting and cutting jobs because um, the Cold War had just ended. So I ended up going into electoral politics because I wanted to elect people who were going to, you know, maybe naively at the time when I was younger, I thought really work to, to the betterment and, and of this country. Um, and some of them have, and some of them have been disappointments, but <laughs> that's how I chose to serve my country. He chose to serve his country in an even more difficult way. He literally put his life on the line for this country and has a purple heart to prove it. He and his twin brother. So think about his father who sacrificed everything to come here, lost his wife, raised his children by himself, and now had to worry about both his boys being killed in action in service of this country, but was proud of them for doing it. And they have, they've dedicated their careers to serving this country. They could have done anything. I think Vinman went to Harvard or I forgot where he went, but the point is, uh, you know, these are not people who didn't have options in life. They did, but they chose to serve this country as soldiers. And he had the misfortune or maybe fortune of being deployed on the National Security Council to handling Ukraine because of the fact that he came from the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic and spoke Ukrainian. So therefore, you want somebody with that kind of experience listening to phone calls on the National Security Council between the two principals, between the president of the United States and the president of Ukraine. Somebody who knows and is an expert in Ukrainian politics. You don't want somebody who's an expert in, you know, Angola. You want somebody who knows the country, knows the language, knows the nuances of the language. Um, you know, I know Russian in ways that no non-native Russian speaker will ever know, because obviously if you're a native speaker, you know nuances and ways, and especially if Ukrainian is anything like Russian, which I think it is, it's a very colloquial language. So all he was asked to do was testify under subpoena. He didn't raise his hand, he was subpoenaed. Testify about what he heard and the concerns that he heard and for telling the truth, and I don't know why anybody thinks he wasn't telling the truth. The guy has dedicated his life to this country, what his possible motive is for perjuring himself under oath, testified about his concerns, concerns that have been, by the way, shared by John Bolton and a bunch of other people at the White House who consistently said that the President of the United States did not have the interests of this country at heart when dealing with foreign governments, that the priority was consistently his own election, whether it's President Xi of China, whom he begged to buy more soybeans because it'll help him with American farmer votes, um, certainly Vladimir Putin, where he said point blank, Russia, if you're listening, I hope you have those emails about Hillary back in 2016. And what Vindman testified to. And for that, this man who has dedicated his life to this country in ways that very few people have, who loves this country in real and tangible ways that I could vouch for having never even met him, but I know it because I know how I feel about it based on what we just talked about in our shared experiences. But what's even more disgraceful 
are the enablers around Trump. Trump is deranged. He's deranged. But you've got a Secretary of Defense. You've got a Secretary of the Army. You've got people in the National Security Council. I mean, all of these people have a responsibility to uphold the Constitution of the United States, not to Donald Trump. And yet, this is how he was treated, so he retired. And uh, I don't even know what to say about that, M, other than to say that this is going to be such a dark stain and such a dark chapter. It's just, it's just amazing to me. And I, I'll never forget what he said, which is when his father said to him, are you going to, you know, I'm worried about you testifying. He says something like, don't worry, Dad, this is the United States. Things like that don't happen the way they happen in Russia. Well, they did. Do you they th- did. Do you think the ramifications of the polit- politicization of the military are going to last a lot longer than if Trump gets out of office? Um, no, because I think they're so ingrained to taking orders from their commander in chief that if you have a normal commander in chief come in, you won't do that. That's why I think Joe Biden is the right man for the moment. We need to return to norms, right? And I think Biden inherently is a norms guy. Same reason, by the way, why I think Biden will not allow his Justice Department, maybe I hope I'm wrong, to investigate Barr um, or to investigate Trump or to indict Trump. because I think he's a, he's the kind of guy that wants to return to norms. And, and sometimes I think that's not great because I think that this cabal in the White House right now has so destroyed our norms that we almost need to, um, we need to make future Donald Trumps realize that there are ramifications to this, that just being president does not absolve you, the way Jerry Ford basically absolved Richard Nixon. That sent a message to the Donald Trumps of the world that don't worry about it. The norms will not be shattered. You will be okay even if you lose. I think that's wrong. Um, and I hope that Biden doesn't do that. But I think Biden is a norms guy. And so I, I fear, at least with respect to what I just talked about, he will not, you know, he will not take action um, against Barr or Trump himself or members of the Trump family. What I think and I don't think that's good. Where I think it is good is with respect to the military. I think he will, I, 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 I mean, he will, I, I can't imagine that he will do anything other than say, we have to go back to normal. The military has to be apolitical. You cannot do this to people who risk their lives. You can't. And I mean, look at what Donald Trump has done. Again, Vinman. You have conclusive evidence that the Russians put bounties on the heads of American soldiers in Afghanistan. And the National Security Council, which don't forget, is a political appointment. The head of the National Security Council works for Donald Trump, clearly knows where his bread is buttered. It's like, oh, yeah, that evidence wasn't conclusive. Well, everybody else says it is, right? The people who don't work for Trump, the career civil servants. And... Not only has he not taken action against Putin, he denied he knew about it. I don't believe for a second that he didn't, but let's give him, take him at his word. He's not, he knows about it now, certainly on the front page of the paper every day. Has he said one negative word about Vladimir Putin? So what does, that, what does that say to Putin? Keep doing it. Keep it up. 
because the commander in chief of these soldiers is not going to do anything to protect them. That's an extension of the minimum situation. If you are a soldier in the field doing your job, your commander in chief will leave you on the field if it serves his political purposes. You know, the beauty of the Israeli army is that even when they lose people in battle, they will do whatever they need to do to bring the remains of their soldiers home. Um, and if that means exchanging terrorists that they've arrested in exchange for a dead body, they will do that. Not this president. I mean, absolutely. And it, look at the Navy captain who raised concerns about the coronavirus. The administration was accused of silencing him, and that's a whole ship of soldiers who could potentially die and then spread the spread the virus. So, um, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it, there's, I wonder, I think it's gotten to the point now where everything that people don't like to hear about Donald Trump, who support Trump, they just say, oh, it's fake news. It's not real. Right. But unless you believe that everything that we're saying is fake news, I cannot imagine how you serve in these armed forces, knowing your commander in chief has effectively left you behind on the battlefield. Um, and especially military families as well. If I were a, a military wife, a daughter, son, whatever, father of someone serving, I mean, that would inspire me, if anything, to get to the voting booth. I mean, your chain of command <laughs> ends with Donald Trump constitutionally. He's the commander in chief. I mean, you rush into war to protect the American people, but in exchange, you expect your commanders to protect you. Finman's a great example. Certainly these men in Afghanistan are great examples. I mean, I can't imagine if I'm still serving in Afghanistan, what I'm thinking about the fact that my life is in jeopardy and yet my commander in chief has not publicly said a word to the person who's putting a bounty on my head. And for anybody who doesn't think Putin's doing it, let me just say this. Vladimir Putin has said publicly that the greatest tragedy of the 20th century is the collapse of the Soviet Union. Well, right before the Soviet Union collapsed, and a major reason for why it collapsed was its investment in Afghanistan and its investment in, um, it was there in Vietnam. And it started in 1979 and it, it lasted a decade. And they lost blood and treasure and it basically led to one of the components of why the Soviet Union collapsed. Um, Putin believes, and rightly to some extent, that the United States was responsible for that loss. And they were responsible for that loss because we worked with the Mujahideen, um, who a lot of whom later became <laughs> the same Al-Qaeda terrorists who came after us. But the point is, back in the late 70s, early 80s, we worked very closely with the Mujahideen to stop Soviet aggression. In fact, I have a next time you're at my house, I'll show you. I have a rug, a little small rug um, in my bedroom from Afghanistan that is very crudely made, but it's sewn to show the Afghani lion eating a Soviet tank. It's a really cool rug. I'll take a picture of it and post it on Twitter, but I'll show it to you next time in my house. It's really cool. It's from the 80s. Um, a congressman who I um, had worked for, Congressman Frank Pallone, got it for me when he was over there um, in the 90s. And um, it's one of my sort of most treasured possessions. But uh, 
Putin's never gotten over that. He blames the loss in Afghanistan on us. And if it means retaliating against us and avenging us, avenging that loss 20, 30, no, 20, forget 20, 40 years later, um, 30 years later, by doing to American soldiers what he thinks the Americans did to their, his soldiers or Soviet soldiers, par for the course. Par for the course. That part of the world, you know, we have short-term memories in this country. <laughs> he remembers. I mean, they remember things that happened, you know, when the Polish Empire controlled parts of Russia in the Middle Ages. So they have long memories in that part of the world. And um, that's what we're up against. That's who our president is enabling. That's who the commander-in-chief of all these soldiers is enabling. Well, what's making you salty this week, Julie? Um, and what's making me salty this week? That's a great question. Nothing, you know, I, I have to think about that. I well, think I mean, I'm, we talked about some things that were we pretty salt-inducing. Vinman's making me beyond salty, obviously. Um, I'll tell you what's making me happy this week. Yes. That the Supreme Court has ruled that uh, the New York Attorney General can get, or New York prosecutors can get their hands on Trump's tax returns. That's good news. That that just came across across the transom at ten o'clock this morning. But do you think that by remanding the cases to lower courts, it, it with both decisions that um, the issue won't be resolved in the near term, though? So meaning it won't be resolved till after the election. I don't know, but it keeps you know keeps. I don't care if it's resolved before or after the election. Quite honestly, it doesn't matter. This is not about electoral politics. It's about holding him accountable. Right. And. Um, it's part, look, if you, if you read Mary Trump's book, which I haven't read, but I've certainly read excerpts of it. Mary Trump is, is Donald Trump's niece. He was completely defrauding her and her brother. I mean, he was undervaluing his assets when it mattered and inflating them tremendously when it mattered. And using um, the I, health of the nephew as a leverage. Yeah. I mean, the nephew is incredibly ill. I forgot which chronic disease he has, but I think it's pretty bad. I think it's cerebral palsy. And saying, if you're suing me, us, then why should we pay for his health care? I mean, really? Because there are plenty of people in this world I really don't like. If I had the ability to pay for their sick kids' health care, I'd pay for their sick kids' health care. Um, I mean, why you'd hold a kid hostage to something is really absurd. I guess what's making, you know, I'll, I'll tell you what's making me salty. It's, it's part of the same conversation that we had, which is these cultists, I mean, these Bob Jones Kool-Aid drinkers, who, against all evidence, continue to support this guy. As he said, if he shot somebody in Fifth Avenue, they'd stick by it. Fifth Avenue, by the way, which is today having Black Lives Matter painted outside of, um, I believe, around 57th, 58th Street and Fifth Avenue. Our uh, friend Marty yeah. Gold Cummings, the um, city councilman, yeah. he is right now, He I saw on Twitter, he's painting <laughs> right That's in front. Painting? Yep. Awesome. You know, the other thing that's making me salty, we talked about this before, but since we're talking about quickly about Black Lives Matter, I've become much less Martin Luther King and much more Malcolm X lately, as I've thought about this. Um, I shouldn't say I've become less Martin Luther King, um, but I've become a little bit more militant about this issue. We talked about this a few weeks ago, but 400 years of slavery, 400 years of being treated as second-class citizens, and yet everybody in the Trump world is like, why are you know, these marches? Why are they marching, peacefully marching? I mean... Why are they not, you got to give them credit for not burning down every Prada store in Soho with the way they've been treated for 400 years. 
with very slow and incremental change, right? I mean, it wasn't so long ago that they were getting beaten in Selma until Pulp, John Lewis and others. That was 40 years ago, 50 years ago, I guess. A little over 50 years ago. And it's still happening now. And the reality is that everybody, why? Why, is, why are they so angry? Why is this happening? Why are they so angry? You try being pulled over by a cop in the New Jersey Turnpike because you're going one mile over the speed limit while some white girl like me is going 30 miles over the speed limit and blowing past you just because you happen to be African-American and she is not. I mean, that's just one example of these small indignities that these people have, you know, that, that African-Americans have to face every single day. Well, this, this works perfectly because I, um, with what I'm salty about, I just watched Do the Right Thing for the first time. No, I've never seen it. Oh my gosh. So it's a 1991 Spike Lee movie. Spike yeah. Lee stars yeah, no. in it. But yeah. literally, it is, so it takes place in Brooklyn on a hot summer day and uh, tensions are high because it's so hot. And then um, eventually two white policemen kill a black man in a chokehold. Literally, this movie could have been shot. I think if it were put out last year, it would be too real. But yeah. nothing has changed. It completely enraged me because black communities are still going through the same shit and not one thing literally has changed. Everything in this movie could have been shot yesterday and the same points he was making were just as relevant today. Um, it Remember infuriating me. Horrible TV show that you made me watch with Al Pacino. I forgot the name of it. Oh, uh, Hunters. Hunters. Remember that? Yes. Um, absolutely horrible, which you and I profoundly disagree on, but that horrible TV show. Um, so here's a show that basically applauds Holocaust survivors going after Nazis and, and killing them, right? Um, and you completely get the impetus. You understand it. You understand it. Um, you understand the desire to kill people who killed you. You know, there's a turn the other cheek component about it, but I think nobody would blame the Israelis for executing Adolf Eichmann, the architect of the final solution, which is, I believe, the only person in the history of Israel who was sentenced by a court to um, the death penalty. Yet here in this country, when there are marches about the way African-Americans are being treated as a result of 400 years of oppression. Oh, can I tell you, right in Tampa, they're uncovering a black cemetery from the early 20th century that was built over in the 1950s and covered by a public housing development. It was one of the first black cemeteries in Florida. And then uh, the Jim Crow era white supremacists sure. built over it. And that was in the 1950s. Yeah. I mean, so let's just think about that. And then let's fast forward to today. Every single day, I think we talked about this before, but I remember five, six, I don't know how many years ago, I was walking to Fox to do Megyn Kelly's show, which was a nine o'clock show. Um, and I decided to walk and it's not a, it's, it was a beautiful spring day. And I'm walking past Lincoln Center, which is one of the most affluent parts of New York City. I mean, truly, you know, you don't worry about walking around Lincoln Center. And I think I told you this um, a bunch of kids from the projects, not not far, from, I think they were from the projects right behind Lincoln Center, ran up behind me and stole my cell phone. Um, and, you know, I start running after them. This 
security guard from Lincoln Center starts running after them through the portico of Lincoln Center, which if you know New York City at all, which I know you do, Emily, right where the fountains are. I mean, Moonstruck was filmed there. I mean, it's countless, countless. This is an iconic part of the city. Um, so obviously, I'm in no shape, and now there was this 60-year-old security guard to catch a bunch of 15-year-olds. Um, so the cops show up, and they immediately start putting and they said, what happened? I said, oh, a bunch of kids stole my cell phone. I don't even think I told them the race of these kids. They start pulling over every kid, every high school age kid walking by these cops. Was it him? Was it him? Was it her? Was it him? Was it her? Was it him? Uh, who are African-American? I'm sorry, not, not the white kids. They start pulling over the black kids. And I mean, those kind I can get into that story because then the black kids start kind of getting offended and they start mouthing off to the cops, like, why are you pulling me over? And the cops are like, shut up, man, if you don't, you know, like, watch your mouth. My little white kid, if he were six or seven years older, he just wouldn't have been pulled over. He just would not have. There was an assumption that these black kids had stolen my phone. And no matter how much I said, I really couldn't identify anybody who happened really quickly. They kept doing it. And what I'm not, you know, it's, it's just a mentality, just a mindset. Think about that petty indignity of some kid walking down the street past Lincoln Center, not exactly the hood. And suddenly a cop's like, hey, come over here. Did you steal her cell phone? Did you steal her cell phone? And then these cops were nice enough to give me a ride to Fox. I wouldn't miss my hit. Um, and wait for me outside of Fox. And I said, you don't have to know. We're happy to. And give me a ride home. Really? Would they have done that for somebody? I mean, it's it's that kind of, it's that kind of little petty indignity stuff. No, and that's how you look at yourself though. If you're if you're a black kid and you're all just immediately pulled over by police as a suspect for just simply walking near where a crime happened, how do you look at yourself every day if that's how you're looked at? If that's how the perception of you is that you're a criminal. That has to weigh on people's minds. And think about how many more African-Americans and men of color especially are in our prisons. And it's not because they commit crime. Well, first of all, through historic economic injustices and opportunities, they happen to disproportionately live in crime-riddled neighborhoods and areas. But even there, you just, I mean, this, this justice system does not treat them equally. They just don't. And they're just not treated equally. From the day the first slave ship arrived in this country, black lives have not mattered as much as white lives. That is just a fact of life. And I forgot where I read this, but this was the thing that struck me the most. If somebody took your kid from you and sold him, where would you put a statue up to that person? That's what we're doing by putting these Confederate soldiers, Confederate statues up. We're putting statue. We're having a debate over statues of people who raped, enslaved, and stole the children of African Americans. How is this a debate? If that happened to you, would you want a statue of that guy? No, and it would be insulting every time you'd have to pass it in this day and age, especially. I mean, people talk about, um, well, you know, we're going to forget our history. This is our history. Yeah, you know what? When when they pulled down the statue of Saddam Hussein in Iraq, I don't remember any of these people saying, "Oh, we got to keep the statue of Saddam Hussein up in Baghdad because uh, otherwise we'll forget our history." No, 
No, put it in a museum for context. You know, there's a big, there's a huge debate right now. Um, as you know, I don't live too far from the Museum of Natural History. There's a huge, huge, huge statue of Teddy Roosevelt, who was one of the found, President Roosevelt, first President Roosevelt, who was a founder of the Museum of Natural History, was a huge naturalist um, and kind of an iconic figure in that museum, the iconic figure of that museum. Huge statue right on Central Park West of him on a horse with an African, um, I guess, tribesman, I don't know who it is, holding, I believe, a gun, um, one of his stirrups. And on the, at the other stirrup is a Native American, basically as a guide to him, where I think what it's meant to demonstrate is he went to Africa, he found all these species of animals, he brought them back here, some of them made it into the museum, he had this African-American guide, or not African-American, sorry, he had this African guide, taking him there um, and then did the same thing in, in the West and had a Native American guide taking him there. Um, there's a big debate over that statue because it looks like here's this white man on a horse and these two people are basically at each stirrup. It's a complicated, it's, it's complicated because I don't think it's meant to show that they're being subjugated. I think it's meant to show that they were his guides in different parts of his life where he brought things back that then eventually led to the Museum of Natural History. But now the city of New York is taking, or the museum has decided to take that statue down, and I think they're going to put it somewhere in the museum for context. Because if you don't have context, what you see is a white guy on a horse with what is clearly um, an African American and a Native American in a lesser than position, kind of a subjugative position. Don't destroy it, put it in a museum. I mean, great. But people like, Jefferson Davis, I mean, every time I crossed, when I lived in DC, I think we talked about this, every time I crossed Route 1, which, you know, <clears throat> runs from Maine to Florida, it is a major, major road, it is the, except for I-95, the interstate road traversing the eastern United States. When you cross Route 1 from the District of Columbia into Arlington, Virginia, it turns into Jefferson Davis Highway. Are you kidding me? Right. Not... <laughs> Are you kidding me? Like, take it down. I'm still going to know who Jefferson Davis is. You right. don't need a statue of Jefferson Davis to tell people who Jefferson Davis was. We all know who he was. And we right. will all continue to learn who he was. I don't need a statue of Adolf Hitler to tell me who Adolf Hitler was. I don't need a statue of Joseph Stalin to tell me who Joseph Stalin was. Right. That is what's making me salty, Emily, in answer to your question. All right. Well. Well, actually, tell me what's making you happy. What is making me happy? I'm actually reading a really good book. Um, speaking of Roosevelt, it's called Eleanor and Hick, and it's about the. I it. Oh my gosh, I am just loving it, and yeah, I love. Well, why it's about Lorna Hickok, right? Who yes, Emily, cool. Emily Roosevelt. Sorry, Eleanor Roosevelt. Um, we're not quite sure. We think girlfriend. Definitely lover. Close female companion. Yeah, they they pretty much throughout Roosevelt's entire tenure in office were living together. And right. she was in the White House with her, which I love. <laughs> well, what I think is great is he was a huge philanderer. Right. In fact, died in, I think it's Warm Springs, Georgia, with Lucy Mercer, his, his lover at his side. Um, and she, I don't know if you've ever gone to the Roosevelt Library, which is in Hyde Park, New York, which is on the Hudson on the way. I happen to have gone there a lot just because it's on the way to the Berkshires where, you know, I have a house. But next time you come up to 
visit me up there, you should, once it's reopened, if you haven't been, take a ride over there. Because what's interesting is uh, her estate, Eleanor Roosevelt's house, called Valhalla, is a few miles away. Um, she lived very separately from him, even, I think, before he became president. Because he had this overbearing mother, Sarah Delano. And I think after she was done bearing his many children, she kind of cut him off um, from any kind of other activity, <laughs> procreative activity, and moved to Valhalla so she wouldn't have to deal with his mother and with him. And they kind of lived separate lives, um, maritally, I should say, not politically, but maritally. And good for her. I mean, good for her. And yeah, Lorena Hickok is very, very interesting. And That's it was great... just interesting to learn how she was just such a great reporter, too. She's an Associated Press reporter yep. and really um, made so much headway and broke a lot of glass ceilings for in her day as a reporter, because it was not looked upon to be a politics reporter and just not a lifestyle or society reporter. Woman, sure, yeah. And the beautiful thing about Eleanor Roosevelt, speaking of statues, there's a great statue, Emily. I don't know, you've run Riverside Park, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a great statue right on 72nd Street um, and Riverside Drive, which people kind of overlook. I don't know why. It's a beautiful statue of Eleanor Roosevelt. And Eleanor Roosevelt was such a fascinating figure in her own right, even if you take aside what we probably think of as her sexuality. But she obviously came from American royalty, was the niece of Teddy Roosevelt and a cousin of her husband, Franklin Roosevelt. Speaking of, could have been a society matron, um, you know, engaging a little noblesse oblige and, and, and kind of stayed true to her class, but she didn't. She looked out for, speaking of African-Americans, I mean, she looked out for the least among us, ambassador to the United Nations. I mean, really, truly a revolutionary woman, in some ways, much more brave and heroic than her husband. And... Um, that's the kind of woman that we need to have statues to. Absolutely. So that's been making me happy just Good. reading well, that. And... <laughs> Anybody who hasn't read it, I highly, highly recommend it. There's a bunch of good Roosevelt books. In fact, I have another couple of books about her and him up in Massachusetts. So if you want, um, please go shopping in my, my library when you're up there. It's very, very, very good. I have a pretty extensive Roosevelt collection. Um, it was so great talking to you. I feel like we went really long this week because we had to make up for last week, but also there's a lot to talk about. There was. I These these talks are giving me a sense of normalcy and getting me through some rougher days. So I am grateful for this great podcast. Everybody. And by the way, if anybody has any questions for us that they want answered um, or just any topics of discussion that they want us to talk about, or even if somebody wants to call into the podcast one of these weeks, let us know and we would love to have you join part of the discussion. So on that note, everybody have a great week and we will see you next week. Awesome. Bye. Later, Julie.